If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. If you're using one of the Bibles, provided under your seat. I believe it's page 943. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. We'll read through chapter 6, verse 12. Let's read this passage this morning. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope to the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Harry Markopoulos is probably not a name many of you know, but he's something of a hero to me. Uh, he, Harry Markopoulos is kind of like a modern-day Isaiah. And while most of you have probably never heard that name, Harry Markopoulos, you've probably all heard the name of his foil, his arch nemesis, the bad guy who he was trying to stand up to. How many of you have heard of Bernie Madoff? Yeah, yeah, Ber- Bernie Madoff. What a, you know, he was an evil guy. He's been called a financial serial killer. Harry Markopoulos uh, is, is a genius. I don't know if he's still working, but in the late 90s and early 2000s, he was uh, a financial advisor and worked for a major financial institution called Rampart Financial Services. And in about the year 2001, 2000 to 2001, Rampart discovered that Bernie Madoff had just all this money coming into him. There was just so much money coming into him. And Rampart said, Harry, we need you to figure out what Bernie Madoff is doing, and we want you to copy it. We want to be his competition. So Harry spent a couple months looking into it and said, how can I beat Bernie Madoff? Because what Bernie Madoff was doing is he was promising his investors, he was promising his investors, his clients, a 12, 13, 14, even 15% return on their investments. 
When the market was bad, you'd still get 15% investments. When the market was good, you'd still get 15% investments. And Harry Markopoulos, as he was trying to figure out what was going on, he discovered, before anyone else, that Bernie Madoff was a fraud. It was a Ponzi scheme. What Harry Markopoulos did at that point is he went to Bernie Madoff's clients. Because you see, Bernie Madoff's clients were not like you and me. Bernie Madoff's clients were fabulously wealthy. Some of his biggest investors were royal families in Europe. Some of his biggest investors were people like the, the, the gentleman who owned the New York Mets. If you own a baseball team, you have a lot of money. Some of his biggest investors were other uh, hedge funds and other trust funds. And they were pouring billions of dollars into him. So what Harry Markopoulos did is he went to Europe and he sat down with the people that managed the money for all these wealthy royal families in Europe. And he said, hey, listen, Bernie Madoff is a fraud. What he's promising you is not true. I can get you 8, 9, 10% return on investment. So invest your money with me. I can make it happen. Look, I'm doing it now. Trust me. You know what they did? They said no. They didn't trust Harry. They didn't trust what was tried and true and proven. Instead, they continued to trust Bernie Madoff, who was deceiving them. The next thing Harry Markopoulos did, and this blows my mind, Harry Markopoulos wrote a 25-page letter to the Securities and Exchange Commission. That's the federal body that sort of makes sure that all of our stock trading and everything is legitimate, that people are being protected and cared for, and that you and I are looked after. He wrote a letter detailing and outlining everything that Bernie Madoff was doing and how he was a fraud. You know what the SEC did? They called Bernie Madoff and said, hey, we want to talk to you about your hedge funds. And Bernie Madoff simply said, what hedge fund? And they said, oh, yeah, that's what we thought. We didn't think you were running a hedge fund. The Security and Exchange Commission trusted Bernie Madoff. Rather than listening to Harry Markopoulos, who had proof, all they did was call Bernie and they took him at his word. And he deceived them. They even considered making him the chairman of the SEC. It's mind-blowing. These people were deceived. They believed what they wanted to believe. Rather than listening to the truth that Harry Markopoulos was bringing them, rather than than looking at the the data and the sheets and the spreadsheets and the actual evidence, they said, no, I want that. And people were deceived. People were deceived to the tune of $19 billion. Americans, people from Europe, people all over the world gave Bernie Madoff $19 billion that he stole from them. It was completely destructive. What's so sad about the Bernie Madoff story is that not only did he ruin so many people's financial lives, is there was a wake of suicide and death that followed in, that, in light of what he did. It's absolutely horrifying. And while most of us here today, I don't think, are royal families in Europe that have millions and millions of dollars that we're investing And while none of us here today are the chairman of the SEC or other major financial institutions, we have an investment that we can make that's worth far more than anything that was ever given to Bernie Madoff. And that's the investment of our lives. That's the investment of where do we put our trust? 
We're not asking where do we put our money. We're asking where is our hope and our faith and our heart placed. And I fear that so often we place it in things like Bernie Madoff. Things that are deceptive. Things that are empty. And things that will lead to ultimate destruction. Harry Markopoulos warned everyone. But no one wanted to hear it. He was a modern-day Isaiah. As I've been studying through the book of Hebrews for this sermon series, I've become convinced that perhaps the greatest Old Testament influence on the book of Hebrews, I used to think maybe it was Leviticus, I used to think maybe it was Jeremiah. These are both very important influences in the book of Hebrews. But I think that perhaps the greatest influence is the book of Isaiah. If I was going to describe the book of Isaiah very briefly, I would say it's the Old Testament book of the Bible where the gospel of Jesus Christ is most fully preached or most clearly preached. Things like the suffering servant passage that tell us that by his stripes we are going to be healed. You can see the gospel quite clearly in the book of Isaiah, but it's also sprinkled through with calls to repentance, warnings of judgment. Turn your hearts to God. Hebrews, I think, is very, very similar Our passage today from Hebrews uh, 5.11 through 6 verse 12 is one of those passages that's going to call us to repentance. Remember the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to say Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's better than anything that you can trust. He's better than the old shadows of the Judaistic religion like sacrificing at the temple. He's better than a workspace righteousness. He's better than the pantheon of gods that the Romans or the Greeks can offer you. He's better than the hope and security that financial stability can provide you. Whatever, as Terry said earlier, we tend to put our trust in, Jesus is better. And so like Harry Markopoulos, going to the wealthiest of the wealthy and saying, watch out where you're putting your money. Put your money where it really belongs. The book of Hebrews is telling us, put your trust and your faith in Christ. Put your trust and your faith in Christ. In this passage today, I think that there are three direct allusions to the book of Isaiah. The first one comes in the first verse. Verse 11. About this we have much to say. Now what is the this that he's talking about? Well, it's what we talked about in our last sermon from Hebrews a a few months ago. Where we talked about Jesus Christ, his nature as truly God and truly man. Now, if I had to guess, most of us could probably better explain the way a car works. And probably we don't have a great understanding of cars. I don't, I mean, I understand how our internal combustion engine works, but I don't know much about it. But I can probably tell you more about that than I can about the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's sad. As Christians, we should have a deep understanding of Jesus Christ and who He is. We should be experts in Jesus. We should be experts in the Bible, what it told us Jesus would do, what it told us He has done. But Paul, who I believe is the author of Hebrews, says about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, his divine nature, his human nature, them being one in the same, or being in the same person, he says about this, we have much to say. We have to keep talking about this. There are still things that you don't understand. And why? 
since you have become dull of hearing. This phrase, dull of hearing, where does that come from? I believe it comes from Isaiah chapter 6. I know I talk about Isaiah chapter 6 a lot. I just think it's one of the most fundamental and foundational passages of the Bible. And Isaiah chapter 6 is a passage where Isaiah receives his commission. Right? Isaiah is, he stands before the Lord. He sees him, holy, holy, holy. And what does Isaiah says? He says, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Isaiah is saying, I'm unpure. The people around me are unpure. I can't stand before your holiness. And what does God do? God sends the angel with the coal and the flaming tongs to purify his lips. And it says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. We all love that passage, right? It's a beautiful passage. But look at Isaiah's calling next, beginning in verse 8. Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. What does God say? Go say to the people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Imagine Isaiah receiving this call. God says, who's going to go preach for me? Right? Whenever Eric says, hey, do you want to preach on this day or that day? I'm like, yes, I want to preach because the congregation at Brainerd will listen. They, they love to hear God's word. That's not what Isaiah was called to. They're going to hear, but they're going to be dull of understanding. They're going to hear, but they're not going to understand. By you preaching, people are actually going to become more confused. I would feel really bad if that was the case. <laughs> what am I doing? What's really fascinating, whenever Harry Markopoulos first went to the wealthy families in Europe and told them, stop investing with Bernie Madoff, the Ponzi scheme at that point had about $2 billion in it. After he went, and after he warned them, it grew to about $19 billion in six years. He warned them, and they invested more. He warned the SEC. And the SEC said, "Ah, it's fine. And people invested more. This is the spiritual state of the people in the book of Hebrews. They should be hearing. They should know the truth of God's word. They should be scholars on Jesus Christ. But they have become dull of hearing. They don't understand. They don't want to understand. He goes on to say, some of you ought to be teachers at this point. Some of you should be so skilled in the word of God that you should be teaching, but I have to come back here and I have to teach you again. He then gives this beautiful passage here where he says that you need to be taught again in the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now, this is an illustration that he's given. This is actually two-pronged. One, it's an illustration. He uses this illustration of needing milk and not solid food. Now, I have my phone right here, and if I wrap this sermon up really quick, it's because I got a text message from Amy saying, hurry up, baby's coming. But whenever that baby gets here, whenever she gets here, she is going to need milk. 
You know, babies don't even have teeth. For the first year of my new daughter's life, she's only going to drink milk because that's what she needs to sustain her. And then eventually she'll move to mashed bananas and avocados and other baby food, squash. We love squash. I love squash. And so you just mash some of that up and real soft food. And then, you know, as they get to be older, Lucy is a whole other story. She only wants to eat chicken nuggets and chocolate. Um, But Gwen will eat spinach and, you know, she'll eat everything. And we're working on Lucy. Pray for us. But... If you were to see me feeding, you know, you know, steak tartare or filet mignon to this new baby in two weeks or three weeks, you would say, what are you doing? Stop it. But whenever she's eight or nine, if I was still only giving her milk, you would say, what are you doing? You're crippling that child. They need solid food. Paul is saying the same is true for us spiritually. Yes, we need milk. Yes, we need the basic foundation of the Word of God to be laid in our lives. But if we are not progressing, if we are not teaching the basic principles and then moving on from that, you are unskilled in the Word of Righteousness, he says. You are a child. You need solid food. We need to be feeding on more deep doctrine. We don't need to be satisfied with empty platitudes. We don't need to be satisfied with just scratching the surface of a text of Scripture. We need to dig deep. We need the solid food because that's where true growth happens. Now, this is an illustration that Paul is using. But Paul is also, he's also quoting from Isaiah chapter 28. Or it's a very strong allusion to Isaiah chapter 28. Now, Isaiah chapter 28 is a pronouncement of judgment on Ephraim. Ephraim was a tribe in Israel. And it's a pronouncement of judgment on Ephraim and Jerusalem, your Bible will say. So I'll read verse 3 and 4. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. What's he saying here? He's saying that Ephraim, in their vainglory, in their pride, God will bring his wrath to them. Their beauty is like a crown. Have you ever seen like a royal crown made of gold and diamonds? will last for ages. That's what their glory looks like. But really, it's like a fig that's ripe, and they just pull it off and eat it, and it's gone. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory, and the diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment. God is bringing, going to bring his judgment. And then he says this, In verse 9, to whom will he teach knowledge? That's the one who brings God's justice. Who is he going to teach knowledge to? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk. Those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. What's he saying? He's saying that the people of Ephraim 
who have turned their back from God's glory and have instead built their own glory, they're building their own crown, they will not receive the knowledge of God. Why? Because they're children. Because they're still living on the milk. They're not growing. There isn't this precept upon precept, line upon line, here little, there little. Instead, they're staying right where they are. I was going to use this illustration with myself, but it won't actually, it won't be as striking as if I use my friend Eric. I don't know, but I, I would assume Eric probably stopped growing about 18 years ago or so. But whenever he stopped growing, he was like 6'2", 6'3", 6'3". He was real tall. When he stopped growing, it's like, okay, you've done enough. You're making the rest of us feel bad over here. Eric stopped growing whenever he was probably in his late teens, and he was already six foot four. And so we can say, okay, you stopped growing, you stopped progressing, it's okay, you've reached the pinnacle. But what if Gwen stopped growing? Or what if Lucy or Andrew stopped growing when they're not even four foot tall? Whenever their bodies aren't fully developed? We would say, why aren't they growing? Something needs to happen here. Something's not right. And that was the people of Ephraim. It's not that they had reached the pinnacle of their height and they had sort of plateaued. They were still children. There was still much growth that needed to happen. Yet, they were not growing. Not growing, needing Milk and not solid food is to be unskilled in the word of righteousness. And I think that we need to ask ourselves, are we unskilled in the work of righteousness? Do we want very basic teaching? Do we want to not be challenged to grow in our faith? Are we content to have a sermon on Sunday and maybe read our Bible once in the week but do nothing else? Or are we hungry for solid food? Do we want the red meat of God's word that is going to sustain us and grow us? The church in Hebrews that that, that Paul was speaking to in the book of Hebrews, it seems to me as if they were growing a little bit lazy. They were content to stay where they were at six years old, at four years old, at two years old, rather than growing into full and mature believers it says, have their powers of discernment trained by the constant practice to distinguish good for evil. What does this eating solid food, this moving to maturity mean? It means that we are in the constant practice of distinguishing good from evil. This certainly means, one, trying to distinguish and discern what is good teaching and what is bad teaching. But it's something greater than that. It's also our lives. Are we seeking to live lives that are constantly seeking to discern between good and evil? Are we constantly seeking to live for the glory of God by doing what is right? Or are we living for our own glory like Ephraim was doing and receiving a crown that will be taken away? We need to move to maturity. Paul says, after warning them that you're dull of hearing, Right? You're immature, you're not eating solid food. He then gives them this great instruction. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on 
to maturity. Now he's going to explain what this means for us. But what I don't want anyone to understand here is to say that, you know, whenever you become a Christian, you know, let's, let's say up here you're not a Christian, and then you come here and you are a Christian, and this is where you get Christ, and you somehow need to dive deeper than Christ, there is nothing deeper than Christ. There is nothing more foundational for the Christian life of both the new believer and the believer who is mature than Jesus Christ. As we just sang, Christ gives us of himself. There's nothing greater that he can give us. It's not as if we're searching for a key whereby we can read the Bible and find a better doctrine or a better truth than Jesus. Jesus is the truth of Scripture that our hearts need. Jesus is the truth of Scripture that spurs our hearts on to live for him and to persevere till the end. But look what he says. He says, let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. What? Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. Now, he's listing out here three things. I'm sorry, uh, uh, four things. Instruction, uh, um, laying of, uh, again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Instruction about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. It's five things, I'm sorry. He gives them five things. Now, these are probably five things that he has had to deal with with them before. If you think about it, where do we see that Paul deals with laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and towards faith in God? Here's a little shameless plug. You can come to Thursday Night Bible Study on Zoom where we're talking about Galatians. Michael and Eddie, I'm sure, will echo me here. Oh, repent from dead works and toward faith in God? Sounds a lot like the book of Galatians. What's he saying there? He's saying, if we can't get this basic thing right, if you guys can't get this basic thing right, that it's not your works that save you, but it's faith in God that saves you, then we have a problem. What about instructions about washings? Well, this is also occurs in the book of Galatians, where he, Paul tells us that we are not concerned with feasts and days, but instead we're concerned with Christ. What's he talking about there? He's saying, if you guys are still concerned with maintaining your ritual purity, after we've talked about the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us that he is the one who has done it for us, then we're in big trouble. You're missing it. The laying on of hands... That could be a reference to some of the things that Paul talks about in First and Second Corinthians. The resurrection of the dead is also from, going to be from his instruction in Corinthians, where Paul lays out all the evidence needed that Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead, that we will, in fact, rise with him again. And if the believers there are saying, you know what, maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's saying, whoa, we have a big problem. We need to get this foundation right. Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead. And eternal judgment. Perhaps the people there were thinking that, well, there's not going to be a real judgment for sin. Is Christ going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead, as we say? Well, maybe not. Paul says, no, he is. These are the basic truths of the Scripture. These are basic things. These are things that we have to agree on. We've got to get this foundation right. 
But it's not enough that we just get this foundation right. We need to be moving on past this. We need to do this, and we need to understand this. Move past this. Look at what he says in verse 3. Does he say, this we will do if we work really hard? No. Does he say, this we will do if Clayton and Eric are really, really, really good preachers? No, he says, this we will do if God permits. That tells us that this going on to maturity, that this moving to the, the, the solid food of God's word and away from the milk, this spiritual growth, it's not just something that we do. It's something that God does in us. We need God to be working in us towards this spiritual maturity. We need God to be the one who is using the preaching of the word, the discipleship that we have with each other, and everything that is going on in our lives. It is God who uses that to grow us. Now think again about a child who is growing. Now, I just talked about how Lucy only wants to eat chicken nuggets and chocolate. At some point, you know, I can't make her grow I can't go in at like a cellular level and like boop, boop, beep, boop, and like program her to grow. It's a natural process, but she has to be fed well. In the same way, it's God who does the growing in us. It's God who does this, but we have the responsibility to eat well. We have the responsibility to make sure that we're not just living on milk, but we're moving towards maturity. Verses 4 through 8 are perhaps one of the most difficult passages for many Christians to understand in the book of Hebrews because it's dealing about something that maybe you've heard, well, you've probably heard it a lot of different ways. Maybe you've heard about the the Christian doctrine of perseverance of the saints, um, which means that those whose faith is put in Christ And those who persevere in faith till the end will be saved. They cannot be taken from God's hand, as we will sing in He Will Hold Me Fast shortly. It's a beautiful doctrine that tells us that those who trust in Christ will be saved to the uttermost. Now, maybe you've heard it said quite crassly, once saved, always saved. I really do mean that I think that that's a crass way of putting it. And here's why. Let's read verses 4 through 8, and then we will work through them together. Paul says, It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who were once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own, contempt, to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and, it is, and its end is to be burned. Now, for many of us who have grown up hearing once saved, always saved or the perseverance of the saints, one of the things, whenever we hear this... What do you mean it's impossible to restore again to repentance? One who has been enlightened, that's one who has trusted or or, uh, who has seen and tasted the heavenly gift, Paul says. That seems to say that when someone is saved, 
then how can we not restore them again to repentance? This can be a difficult teaching to understand. Right? It says that if they fall away, then they are crucifying the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. But I think the secret here begins in verse 3, this we will do if God permits, and all the way through verse 8. This is our third allusion to the book of Isaiah. So if you want to turn here, I think it's very important. Isaiah chapter 55. We'll look at Isaiah chapter 55 fairly in depth because I think it will help us understand this. I think that one of the problems is the way that we think about conversion. What happens when you become enlightened and you taste the heavenly gift? What do you think happens? You think it's like one of those you know, punch cards you get at, at the sandwich shop where it's like every tenth one you get, you get a free sandwich? Is that what you think of conversion? That like, oh, here's my card, I'm going to punch a hole in it, and then that means I get to heaven for free. When you think of your conversion, do you think of it as, you know, I made a decision for Jesus. I signed a card. I joined the club. I'm in the membership. Well, the biblical language that Paul is using here is the image of growth. It's the image of a farm. Let's let that be the imagery that we use. And let's look at Isaiah chapter 55. And think about all the words in Isaiah chapter 55 that are echoed in Hebrews. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me, there's that word listen again, and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon him. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the crucial part. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The language between Isaiah 55 and Hebrews chapter 6 is striking. Okay, think about it in verse 4. He says, who have tasted the heavenly gift. What does Isaiah 55 tell us to do? Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
eat and drink of the water without price. Taste the goodness of God, it says in verse 5, and the powers of the age to come. Again, echoed from Isaiah 55. Then look in verses 7 through 8. The land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop that's useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. As it says in Isaiah 55, that the rains and the snows come down and they produce bread for the eater and seeds for the sower. In verse 8, it bears thorns and thistles or thorns and briars. As it says in Isaiah 55, that's the land that is cursed. But now in Isaiah 55, it tells us that the land that was cursed is not going to be cursed anymore, but instead it will be blessed. The language here is striking. So what is Paul telling us? Paul is talking here about those who have heard the word of God. It's about those who hear the word of God regularly. Look at what he says in verse 7. For land that has drunk rain that often falls on it. Church, if you are here at this church, or maybe you've been in other churches, and you hear the word of God often, what does it say? It says that it ought to be producing a crop. It ought to be producing a crop. And it ought to be producing a crop that's a blessing. Bread for the eater. Seed for the sower. But what does he say happens in verse 8? That sometimes the land bears thorns and thistles. It's worthless and near to being cursed. Here's the point of what Paul is saying. He's saying that if you are sitting in the midst of God's people, if you are hearing God's word preached, and you are bearing thorns and thistles, that is, your life is not reflecting the goodness of God's word. If you are unskilled in the word of righteousness, if you are still longing for milk and not for the spiritual food, he says that you are bearing thorns and thistles. Is there spiritual growth in your life? That's the question that Paul is asking us here. Perhaps you've wondered, is this text about me? Am I the one who can't restore repentance? Am I the one who is holding up the Son of God to contempt? And the question that this text is going to ask you and ask of your soul is, is there growth? Is there the sign of the fruits of the Spirit that we see in Galatians? Is there a growth, though it be uneven, though it be not steady? Is there blessing coming from your life? And he's referring here to spiritual blessing. When the Word of God is preached, when we are sitting under the Word of God, This is who Paul is speaking to here. It's to us in this room. Let's be very honest. We need to understand. We need to take stock of our own lives. The word, the the, the rain has fallen often on the field of my heart. Is it yielding growth? If it's not, we ought to be concerned. 
we ought to be concerned. But Paul closes by saying this. Though we speak in this way, what way? The way of saying, hey, if you're not growing fruit, then you better be concerned. If you're not growing fruit, then your field will be burned. If you are not progressing, if there is not spiritual growth, if you are not moving on to maturity, then you will be cursed. Your end is to be burned. That's the way he's speaking in. But he says, I feel sure of better things for you. Things that belong to salvation. Paul tells the Hebrew church, he says, you're slow to learn. You're still infants. You're not quite there. You need to grow. You need to move on to maturity. But I feel confident that it's not the curse. It's not the being burned. It's not the thorns and thistles, but things that belong to salvation that will be for you. Why? For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving all the saints as you still do. Why is Paul sure that they're not that field of thorns and thistles and briars that destruction will be poured out on? Why is he sure that they're the field that the word has, has fallen on and there is growth? Because of their love for each other. Because they are seeking to pour out their lives for one another. Because they are loving God with their hearts, they are loving each other with their hearts. Church, if we want to be sure that we are that field that is growing the blessing, then we can tell by the love and the holiness that we have for each other. But notice that it's not grounded in what we do. It's that God is not unjust, which means that God in His justice will see the work of our hearts and the work of our lives, and He will say, this is the field that is bearing fruit and blessing. This is a fruit where there is a field where there is growth. And perhaps you're here today, and this next verse is something that you need to hear. That we desire each one of you to share the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Perhaps you're here today and you wonder. Am I that field that's going to be burned? Am I, do I have assurance of faith? Paul tells us that he wants each of us to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And so how can we have that? By looking at our lives and looking at the fruit that our lives have grown. When you look back on your life, and perhaps yesterday was a great time for us to do that. Right, as we looked back on the life of Pat Wilson yesterday, it was easy and it was manifest to see that God had borne fruit in her life. He had borne fruit in her life through what she has done for our church, what she had done for her family. Have you taken time to just step back and say, God, show me, you know, if, if I look back on my life, is, has there been spiritual growth? Look for that spiritual growth. Look for this field of blessing that God is cultivating and growing. But also it's important that you don't just look back on your life and say, is there growth there? It's also important that you are a field that is often being watered. Are you spending time in God's word? Are you spending time sitting under the word of God? Are you, as it says, 
being imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. There are struggles, there are trials that come up in our life. Perhaps there are desires that we think, uh, maybe th- this, this temptation to sin is greater than my, my desire to follow after Christ. He says, faith and patience. Hold on faithfully and with patience. Have good hope to the end. And then you will know, then you will know that you will inherit the promises of God. Remember, the people that the book of Hebrews was being written to were being sold a bill of lies, much like the clients of Bernie Madoff. Give your money to me. Invest your money in me. I'm going to give you good things. But they wanted to be deceived. When I watched this documentary on Bernie Madoff, I was struck that he did not know at all the way that markets or economies work. He was actually very ignorant. And in his ignorance, he led many, many people astray. And he ruined countless thousands, perhaps millions of lives. Church, if we want to protect our souls from this, from being led astray, from the deception and the destruction, then that means that we need to devote ourselves to good doctrine. If we don't want to be that field that is bearing thorns and thistles, if we don't want to be the one who has fallen away and will not be restored, then we need to be devoting ourselves to this time together. We need to be devoting ourselves to one-on-one Bible study together, to our other Bible study, to lots and lots of Bible intake. The people who trusted Bernie Madoff were much like those who are going to bear thorns and thistles. They're rejecting the real thing for a false thing. Jesus is the only true and perfect Savior. He is a true Son of God. He is our High Priest who has died on the cross to save us from our sins. He has risen from the grave and sits enthroned at the right hand of God. We might be tempted to put our hope in other things. For for this audience, perhaps it was to turn back to the temple worship. For this audience, perhaps it was to turn to the Greek pantheon. For us today, maybe it's a a, a thought that, well, if I turn to, I need to do more to ensure that I'll be saved. Maybe if I can please God with my life, then I'll be saved. The message that we need to hear is that we need the message of Christ. It needs to be fed to us regularly. We need to eat and drink of it deeply. We need that rain to fall often on our hearts. Why? So that we might move on to maturity. Chapter 6, verse 1 is the the, the great thrust of this passage. Where he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Church, are we constantly moving forward, both together and individually, so that our love of Christ is deeper? So that our knowledge of his word is deeper? so that our hearts are growing and maturing. My prayer is that we will be giants of the faith, that we'll be six foot three, standing tall among men as those who know Christ, those who love Him, those who are skilled in the work of righteousness. 
I pray, church, that we will be, in verse 12, those who are not sluggish, those whose hearts and lives exemplify what God has done. They seek to follow after him and are growing and bearing fruit. If you're here today, and perhaps you have heard the message of the gospel time and time again, and perhaps you think, perhaps in your mind, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I've punched that card. Have you trusted in Christ? And are you seeing the fruit of what God does in our hearts? You can talk to Eric or myself, and we'd love to talk to you about what that means, about what true conversion is, not just signing your name to a card, but the life that comes from the work of God. Perhaps you're here today and you struggle. Am I really saved? Look to this passage and say, Yes, I can trust that what God has done for me, that I will inherit His promises. Why? Because I see the work of the Spirit. Because He is growing and doing in me, though imperfectly, a desire to live for Him and to love others. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray for Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church. I pray for the believers here that we will be those That we will be those who want the solid food of your word. That we will be mature believers who have the powers of discernment, who seek to distinguish between right and wrong. That we will be those whose fields are blossoming. That there is much blessing to be taken from it because the word of God falls on our hearts often. Weekly here in this service, daily through our Bible reading, and in other areas where we study your word together. I pray that we will be those who inherit the promise and who hold fast to that promise till the end. Help us to not be a people who questions, am I saved? But help us instead to be a people who say, I trust in Christ, and he is working and willing and doing in my life for your glory, and I will hold till the end in that faith. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.